America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to ask the question, is a core problem in America the idea that billionaires just have too much money? Well, okay. By definition, billionaires have a lot of money, but they keep making more. Is that a disaster or a blessing for the United States? And to understand an answer to that, you have to understand what it means to make money. Making money means creating wealth, not necessarily seizing it from somebody else. We will get to that story. It's actually very relevant to the new head of the Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. Uh, this is uh, one of the most controversial ideas and innovations of the Biden administration so far. Over at the National Review, Jim Garrity is comparing the creation of this board to a new ministry of truth. Is that really what we're dealing with? And what about getting the truth about what is happening in Ukraine? Uh, one of the problems, obviously, with what is going on there is that the Russian people have no way of getting the truth. Uh, but we do. Uh, we're going to be speaking to a former clandestine officer for the CIA, uh, talking about Ukraine, uh, Putin, and how it's possible for the good guys to win this one. What's so amazing to me is when you talk to people about Ukraine actually winning this war, which I do and actually spent some time talking about it last night, the, uh, the, the notion that you actually win and Putin loses, maybe even loses his dictatorship, that offends people. I say, well, he, nobody wins a war like this. Everybody loses. That's not true. That's not what happened with the Cold War. And remember, of course, there's that old story uh, about President Reagan being asked, uh, how does the Cold War end? He says, it's very simple. Uh, we win, they lose. And uh, there really is no chance at all for both sides to win uh, f or for a an easy off-ramp at this point. And uh, there's perspective on that involving not just Russia versus Ukraine or Russia versus NATO. It also involves China and uh, the future of uh, what is happening with Taiwan because a victory in Ukraine uh, would do more than anything else you can possibly imagine to discourage the very troubled and challenged Chinese Communist regime from uh, actually making a dangerous move and provoking uh, a new war in the Indo-Pacific uh, Indo uh, theater. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. There is also a massive new study from uh, Pew Research about the American middle class and how it's changed. And one of the things that it points out is that Yep, it's true. The middle class is smaller, significantly smaller than it used to be. Now, why is that? Actually, because more people have been moving up into the upper class. That upper class has been growing 
much more quickly in terms of numbers and in terms of their own wealth per individual than anything that might be considered on the lower income strata or the uh, working class so-called. And does that have political consequences? Everything has political consequences right now, particularly in the midst of this uh, ferocious battle to on the part of Democrats to maintain their control of Congress. There's a, uh, a checklist of seven things that Democrats must do, this put forward by the New York Times, that they must do in order to have even a hope of winning this election. Guess what? They're not going to do a single one of those things because they're all commonsensical and they're important. We will get to that also on The Michael Medved Show. First off, on the economy as a, an issue for the United States, uh, the um, uh, the economy today is a losing issue for the administration. The uh, clip 19, uh, Jen Psaki, the uh, spokesperson for the White House for a few weeks more, says uh, this about the status of the economy. Listen. We created more jobs. We jobs last year than any job in American history. We're at a low, uh, a very low unemployment rate. And while costs are high and inflation is not where we want it to be, the Federal Reserve continues to project that will come down by the end of the year. So our economists and our economic team continues to uh, feel confident in the strength of the economy, even as we monitor a range of data. Okay. Uh, do you feel uh, – why, if that is the case, do you have situations – like we have today, where the uh, Dow is down 700 points. I mean, I know the market goes up, it goes down, but the market has been struggling. And it is true what Jen Psaki says is not all of the economic data is terrible. Some of it's fairly encouraging. But uh, the, the idea that uh, this is something that is going to turn around by the end of the year why would that be significant? Because the election is near the end of the year. The election is coming up in November. But as we talked about yesterday, the thought that uh, Joe Biden is going to be able to run on the economic issue is preposterous. Yeah, according to all of the polling, only about a third of Americans approve of the job he's doing on economic issues. And when it comes to inflation, it's less than that. And who do you blame? Well, uh, Chuck Schumer knows who to blame. Uh, here is the senator from New York, clip 13. Oil companies last year made record profits on these tragedies, almost like vultures. We have the Ukraine tragedy, we have the COVID tragedy, and do they try to make things better? No, they come in and make record profits. Okay, the idea that they are vultures, look, one of the things about the big American corporations, and nearly all of them, and of course it's easy to hate them because they're successful, but uh, one of the things that happened and should be very encouraging is not only when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine did uh, we succeed in putting together a, a very firm alliance of European powers with profound changes from Germany and others. Uh, that that made that possible. Not only did NATO show its stuff and show its value, but leading corporations, but very prominent corporations, Microsoft and, and the oil companies stopped their operations in Russia. 
They left. They heard it. Over 750 companies have voluntarily curtailed operations in Russia to some degree beyond the bare minimum legally required by international sanctions. But uh, some con companies have continued to operate in Russia undeterred. Uh, McDonald's is still paying uh, Russian uh, salaries, but uh, uh, yet it pulled out and is still it, it is still paying despite the fact that it pulled out. Uh, the Hill reports stocks sank Friday as the market opened with a sell-off in technology stocks, capping a brutal month for Wall Street. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite and the SP500 index were both down roughly 1.6% by Friday morning. It's more than that now. While the Dow Jones Industrial Average opened the final trading day of April with a loss of 1%. All three major indexes were on track to end April with steep losses driven largely by threats from higher interest rates, uh, energy prices, and inflation. The Nasdaq is on pace to close April down 13% from the start of the month. It's worth monthly loss since October 2008. And remember October 2008? That was uh, the, the collapse known as the collapse of the economy that led us into a period of great difficulty and secured the election for the opposition. That would be Barack Obama at that time. We will be right back with more about what's really going on in Ukraine coming up. Medved show uh, the uh, war in Ukraine uh, impacts everything and right now compared to any other issue in the country actually winning in Ukraine is uh, the single uh, most important focus and actually a former CIA director John Brennan had a um, an update on uh, Vladimir Putin's plans for taking over Ukraine and at the very least clearly what he wanted to do he said he wanted to decapitate the leadership he wanted to denazify Ukraine and the Ukraine with both its Jewish president and its uh, Jewish defense minister uh, Oleg uh, uh, Rosnikov um, that uh, it's it's remarkable and laughable, of course, denazifying this particular regime, and uh, it's amazing also that uh, this is conducted in in the midst of uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, which was observed yesterday. Today, by the way, is Arbor Day. It's Tree Planting Day, which is a good time to honor our friends, the trees, and to plant trees, which make life more beautiful and help to deal with climate change and actually purify the air and improve our environment. So let's hear it for trees. But uh, John Brennan was uh, talking about uh, what happens next in this war and what 
Putin's next step is likely to be. Listen. There's sort of, again, from the outside, two schools of thought that, that one, Vladimir Putin is most dangerous when he's cornered and losing and humiliated. And, and two, some other intelligence officials say, such as his grip on his own country, that they don't even think he's at a war. They think he's engaged in a special military operation. There aren't clear objectives that he needs to achieve there. Tell us how we should view Putin's moves in, in, in the context of weakness, strength, or something in between. Well, Nicole, I think he's clearly reacting to the ongoing developments, many of which have been setbacks to Russia. So he's been adapting on the military battlefield in Ukraine by consolidating and repositioning forces along the east and the south of Ukraine because of the pummeling that the Russian forces took. But also now he's reacting to the strength of NATO support and particularly the ongoing supply of weapons and ammunition to the Ukrainian forces. And so therefore he's trying to put pressure and intimidate uh, uh, Poland and Bulgaria by cutting off natural gas. So I can see him continuing to do these things because he realizes that his initial game plan has just completely collapsed and therefore he has to adapt and react. And so it's going to be a combination of saber rattling and rhetorical flourishes. He's trying to, again, threaten the West, but mm -hmm. also taking these types of steps to try to, apply, to, to appeal to those uh, sympathizers in Europe and also in the United States, uh, unfortunately, uh, as a way to, again, split the NATO alliance and to weaken the resolve and the determination of NATO to continue to, to support Ukraine. Okay, and there's a terrific piece that supplements what uh, John Brennan is saying about how this ends or doesn't end. It's a piece uh, that uh, appeared uh, over at msn.com by Elliot Cohen, who's a uh, former foreign policy and defense operative in various administrations. And uh, the title is The Strategy That Can Defeat Putin. And what he writes is profound, and actually I found very moving and encouraging. And we'll link to this uh, at our website at michaelmedved.com. Cohen writes, the confrontation with Russia will not end with its Western invasion and conquest, and hence not with its reconstruction, as happened with Germany, Italy, and Japan after World War II. The road that the West should seek will lead either to the collapse of Putin's regime or to a long-term weakening of the Russian state's capability and appetite for aggressive war. Such outcomes occur the way Ernest Hemingway described bankruptcy. It happens gradually and then suddenly. The trajectory is clear, but we do not yet know just how fragile the Russian army and economy are. The collapse could take weeks, it could take months, or years. So persistence will be necessary in the face of inevitable setbacks and counterstrokes. A new defense strategy document has been in the works for months now at the Pentagon, and it should be set aside and rewritten for a very different world. There will be no overwhelming shift to focus on China. Rather, the United States will have to be, as it was for the most of the 20th century, an ambidextrous power asserting its strength and managing coalitions in both Euro, Europe and the Indo-Pacific. That will in turn require larger defense budgets and no less important a change in mindset. Many hazards lie ahead, he writes, for that is the future of conflict with an unscrupulous and possibly somewhat deranged opponent. But all the odds are on the West side. The valiant Ukrainian population is willing to fight to the end and for the moment 
the West has found the unity and the resolve to aid it. The Western economies are far and away the wealthiest, most resilient, and most advanced. The Western militaries deteriorated after the end of the Cold War to a shocking degree, but their disarmament is not comparable to their desultory state in the 1930s. And the West faces not an ideological challenge comparable to Nazism or communism, but a vicious form of nationalism entrenched in a country that saw a million more deaths than births last year, that is burdened with a corrupt and limited economy, and that is led by an isolated, aging dictator. And then he concludes this way with a wonderful quote that I didn't know, but everybody should take to heart. The quote is this, Courage, as Churchill said, courage is the virtue that makes all other virtues possible. Without courage, the West cannot succeed, but with it, it cannot fail. And part of uh, what he also says, Ukraine 2022 is not Czechoslovakia 1938, not only because Ukraine is fighting ferociously, but because the democracies are with it in material as well as moral ways. It differs, too, that this time the aggressor is not Europe's most advanced economy, but one of its least. Its military is not the fearsomely effective Wehrmacht, but a badly led, semi-competent, if well-armed horde, better suited for and inclined to the massacre of civilians than a fight against its peers. Russia's failure to command the air, its stalled armored columns, the smoking ruins of its tanks and armored personnel carriers, all testify to the Russian army's weakness. So too does the continuation in office of the long-serving chief of general staff and defense minister who planned and led this operation, a debacle in the face of every advantage of positioning, timing, and materiel superiority. We will be right back with uh, Lindsay Moran, who is a former clandestine operative with the CIA. She's lectured at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and uh, at Yale University. We'll be right back with Lindsay Moran. It's a pleasure to welcome to this show Lindsay Moran, who is a former CIA operative with over 20 years' experience across a broad professional spectrum, including covert operations, investigations, social impact, and communications. Uh, she has lectured at Harvard and at uh, Yale and uh, also at the Harvard University John F. Kennedy School of Government. And uh, it's uh, wonderful to speak to you, um, Ms. Moran. Let me ask you, first of all, because you've specialized in communications, and there are conflicting reports about the level to which Putin's propaganda machine has worked with his own people. Do you believe the accounts that suggest that he is overwhelmingly popular at home and that the war is supported by uh, 80, 90 percent of Russians? I don't know if those exact figures or percentages are right, but I will say that I think his propaganda efforts have been largely successful in Russia, and that's probably one of the scariest things about this conflict. You know, when it first started, I, I had this thought that 
Russia has enjoyed now years of, you know, while not full freedom freedom of expression, certainly a lifting of the kind of, you know, repression and, and state control that existed during the Soviet Union. And I thought, there's no way that Vladimir Putin can stuff that genie back in the bottle. And yet, we have seen that happen. You know, we have seen um, Russian mothers uh, denouncing their children or Russian fathers denouncing their children who speak out against the war. I don't know if it's so much a case of the propaganda being successful as fear of the consequences uh, that could happen in Russia if you do speak out, if you even refer to the, quote, you know, special military operation as a war, you face 15 years in jail. So it's easy for us, I think, with our American hubris, you know, to look over and say, why aren't the people rising up against him? You know, why aren't ordinary Russians doing something? And we forget that Russian citizens have a very different relationship, not just with Vladimir Putin than we do with our leaders, but, but with the state and with news and, and how they react to things. So I'm going to say I do think his propaganda machine has largely been effective within Russia. Okay, and uh, presumably there's an account of uh, United States intelligence helping Ukraine with its air defenses and of a Russian plane carrying hundreds of troops being shot down by the Ukrainians. That's probably not getting much attention in Russia. No, that's, that's getting no attention in Russia. I mean, look, you know, Vladimir Putin and, and Russian officials have have backed out of uh, Kiev, trying to take down Kiev, and have kind of skulked away but claiming success. Um, and there were, they have not had success in Kiev. They had not had success in Odessa. You know, the, the, what we have seen from the Russian military has been astounding and, and humiliating. I mean, not just the lack of discipline and um, resorting to barbaric, inhumane tactics, but even their operational security is just pathetic. You know, you have Russian generals uh, getting off left, right, and center, and they're using cell phones, they're using open communications on the battlefield. I mean, I got to say, my teenage kids don't use open communications like that when they play paintball. So everything that we're seeing on the outside, you know, all of these humiliations, the defeats uh, for Russia, the, the many Russian soldiers lost, lives lost, ships sunk, that is all being spun in a much different way within Russia. I can imagine. Um, and and in, in terms of the foreign legion of uh, volunteers from uh, United States, Canada, from neighboring nations, from Poland, people they estimate up to 20,000 uh, foreigners have volunteered to fight for Ukraine. You've actually met with some of those people, is that right? I have actually former veterans, who, uh, friends who have um, volunteered and gone to Ukraine. Now, I will say that um, I think, and I've, I've said this before, I can completely understand, the, particularly on the part of veterans, that impulse to want to go fight for Ukraine. You know, we're see, what we see is a real clear delineation between good and evil in the world. And we have so many veterans who fought in Afghanistan and saw, you know, a 20-year 
war and all of their efforts come to naught, uh, or, or who fought in Iraq where the U.S. had a much more muddled mission. And, and they're kind of hand-delivered this, this mission where it's really clear that they're on the side of good, and, and there is that impulse to want to get involved. And I think U.S. and Western veterans who've had combat experience can be of tremendous help to people in Ukraine. All that said, there's also, you know, ordinary citizens going over with no combat experience and no training. And that, to me, I think is um, probably not a wise idea. The risks far outweigh the gain either to Ukraine or to the West. And uh, in terms of the uh, aid that is now flowing to Ukraine, do you believe that uh, to keep the momentum for the Ukrainian side, that that aid needs to be increased? I do, 100 percent. You know, we had um, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, you know, saying, Ukraine can win this war. Ukraine will win this war. And that was, I think, a real eureka moment, you know, for the whole world. Um, and, um, you know, I've got to believe that Vladimir Putin heard about it. You know, I had the thought, is, is this a, just a psyop against Putin himself? But, you know, I think the West and Western officials and Western military experts are seeing something that we didn't think we'd see, which is Ukraine really holding tough. Um, not only being able to defend themselves against the Russian military to an extent that we didn't anticipate, but being able in some places to go on the offensive. And I think while that momentum is building and while we're, we, the West, we, the U.S., are committing aid, committing armaments, we can't step back now. We have to, I don't want to say escalate, that's not the right word, but we have to build off that momentum. We have to build off the will um, of the Ukrainian people if this is going to be a success. And by a success, I mean, you know, driving Russia out. And then apparently there's a lot of coverage that uh, Putin wants desperately to have some kind of victory to boast about on Victory Day, celebrating the triumph over the Nazis by uh, Russia and at that time her allies, America and Britain. The, uh, that's celebrated in Russia on May 9th, so it's uh, soon. Uh, do you worry about uh, the deployment of some kind of tactical nuclear weapons before that time? Um, I, I don't, and I don't want to say I completely don't worry, but I don't think that is the what what he's going to pull out of his hat for the victory. I do think, you know, I worry about the Donbass region and the movement of troops there and uh, his attempt to cut off that region and, and focus on that region because, you know, it didn't work in Kiev. It didn't work in Odessa. Um, so I worry about escalation there. I do worry in the long term about a nuclear escalation, but I know, you know, we're monitoring the movement of Russian, so, um, of Russian nuclear armaments. I don't think that's going to happen on May 9th or because of May 9th. I think May 9th is going to be a dog and pony show with more propaganda. Whatever he can claim as a victory, he's going to claim as a victory. And one thing I think we might look to as, as the U.S., as we become a little stronger in our rhetoric is Putin reframing this as he's already tried to do as U.S. versus Russia and West versus Russia. 
You need to read the uh, critically acclaimed best-selling memoir by our guest, Lindsay Moran. It is called Blowing My Cover. It's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Have a wonderful weekend. Godspeed to you. Uh, when we come back, the war at home, question mark. Uh, that and more on The Medved Show. Michael Medved show, uh, retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Stavridis uh, remains one of the uh, few voices out there. And uh, James Stavridis apparently uh, ended up being the runner-up uh, selected as a running mate for Hillary Clinton. This is back in 2016. Uh, she selected, remember, Tim Kaine, who was a total dud as a vice presidential candidate, and maybe not as as inept and feckless as uh, Kamala Harris, but in the same ballpark. In any event, Admiral Stavridis, uh, a different, different matter altogether. But uh, he remains one of the rare voices among people who have a background in national security and a background in international diplomacy in believing that a negotiated settlement of some kind might be possible with Vladimir Putin. Here's what he had to say on that. This is clip 10. I think the best path forward remains a negotiation with Putin and perhaps putting more pressure on the economic side with with a particular goal, a tactical one to begin with. Small note of uh, potential here. We just saw a an exchange of a, a hostage being held in the United States for an individual that we had appropriately incarcerated here in the United States. The Russians are transactional. Perhaps there is a transaction that can help here. Uh, a again, the disagreement on that, and for instance, in the piece that I just read about Elliot Cohen, who was writing about the strategy that can defeat Putin, the the problem with what he is saying is that if you are going to negotiate something with the Russians, it's like negotiating with the Iranians. You have to take the Iranians and uh, and 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 basically trust them which is a real problem when the real need is to weaken them and you also are going to be providing the Iranians if we were to go forward with that uh, restoring that Iran deal which President Trump was right to junk and which I think uh, President uh, Biden is basically ready to let go but uh, to revive their economy to give them economic strength and the whole point of this war the whole impact of a western victory is going to be to weaken russia not because we hate russian people or we want the people of that country to suffer but to make it less likely that there is another russian move I'll say against estonia or one of the other baltic republics or against poland uh by the way poland what a remarkable story that is. I, I mean, uh, again, Poland being our stalwart ally, Poland, even before this war, had raised its defend, defense spending 
to 3% of its gross domestic product. Uh, Poland is a formidable regional military power, not a worldwide global power, but uh, it is certainly one of the key parts of the Western defense. And speaking of uh, Western defense and the right goal, uh, the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, uh, I think spoke on that persuasively. And uh, building on comments from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, General Austin talked about the need for the war not to destroy Russia. No one's talking about invading Russia or anything of the kind, but weakening Russia to prevent future aggressions. Uh, listen to John Kirby at the Pentagon, clip 16. From the outset of this war, uh, uh, it has been administration policy to, to, uh, to not allow Russia to be in a position to do this again. That is what he was talking about. And they are already a weaker military. They have suffered thousands of casualties. They have lost airplanes. They have lost tanks. Uh, they have certainly lost battles. Um, and, um, and they are certainly a weaker, a weaker military than they were 64 days ago. No question about it. We don't want to see them be able to restore that kind of uh, aggressive power again and, and do this kind of thing to another neighbor. And the bottom line is, and again, we've been saying this from the very beginning, uh, that this should not be cost-free for Mr. Putin. He should suffer consequences. And quite frankly, he and quite has, not only on the battlefield, uh, but is an economy. Okay, and uh, those economic consequences, if uh, they are removed, the sanctions are removed as part of a negotiation, with what security guarantees? That becomes the real question. And uh, the idea of... Um, imposing neutrality on Ukraine? How do you expect a country after it has been devastated and uh, the, the killing and the brutality and the war crimes, how do you expect a country that has been victimized in that way to pledge neutrality for the future? H how do you take, if you have been the victim of grotesque evil, how do you take the idea that there's no choice between good and evil? There is a choice, and the Ukrainians know about it. There's also the threat of nuclear war. John Kirby had this to say on Russia's nuclear threat. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby, clip 17. Does the Pentagon worry that Putin might look to use more low-yield tactical nuclear missiles in the battlefield? Yeah, we've talked about this uh, low-yield tactical nuke issue. I, um, uh, look, I... I uh, a nuclear weapon's a nuclear weapon. Um, and you can talk all you want about low yield and tactical and all that. It's a nuclear weapon. It's a weapon of mass destruction. And it's completely irresponsible for a nuclear power uh, to be saber-rattling like that and blustering on about the potential use of nuclear weapons of any kind, of any, of any size, uh, of any yield. Um, and that's why uh, we're monitoring this as best we can, the, the Russian nuclear capabilities. And as I've said, Many, many times um, uh, we are comfortable with the strategic uh, nuclear deterrent posture that, that we have in place to defend the homeland and defend our allies and partners, and we urge Russia uh, to stop uh, escalating the rhetoric uh, uh, with respect to nuclear weapons and do the right thing. Is end the war today. Have your troops leave Ukraine. Sit down in good faith with President Zelensky and do the right thing. And the important thing here is have your troops leave Ukraine. How do you negotiate with somebody who has invaded your country, killed your people, 
and is now sitting there in your country. Uh, we do have a moment, and it's appropriate to give a tribute to our tweet of the day. Turn the page now to the Internet. I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. Change his password so he no longer has access to his Twitter feed. Did you send the tweet? I did not send that tweet. My system was hacked. I was pranked. Donald Trump hasn't tweeted at us once, and I'm starting to get worried about him. So we have a new tweet. All right. Can I do the honors? Stand by. Tweet alert. This is a, a tweet from Madison Cawthorn, the currently embattled uh, Congress member from uh, North Carolina. He uh, seems to be upset because, in addition to all of the other scandals involving him, like twice trying to board airplanes, commercial planes, with uh, loaded firearms, which you can't do, even if you're a member of Congress. Sorry. Um, he's uh, okay. Cawthorn tweets. I believe in some pretty aggressive government reforms. I want to change the GOP for the better, and I believe in America first. I can understand the establishment attacking those beliefs, but just digging stuff up from my early 20s to smear me is pathetic. What he's talking about is photographs that have been discovered showing him uh, wearing lingerie, uh, women's clothing. No, he is not claiming to be gender binary or non-binary or anything of the uh, point. But what it says here is, but just digging stuff up from my early 20s. He's 26. He's the youngest member of Congress. He is just barely over the legal limit to run for Congress. And so digging stuff up from his early 20s where it's, you don't have to dig. I mean, it's right out there. And uh, this is might have been going into somebody's closet, but who knows. Uh, Madison Cawthorn should not be banned from running for Congress. I haven't taken a position on this. There's an attempt to try to disqualify uh, under the 14th Amendment to disqualify both Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene from running for Congress. I, I wish they would both give up their congressional careers and their campaigns. I think they're very destructive and damaging to the conservative cause and to the Republican Party. But uh, uh, to try to use a clause in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution that says if you have been guilty of insurrection against the United States, that you cannot hold federal office. Okay, right. But are, is it really fair to say that uh, their support for some of the rioters on January 6th involves insurrection as meant by the Constitution, which was really focusing on the Confederate cause in the Civil War? There are other reasons to defeat them, uh, but not that one uh, for this greatest nation on God's green earth.